Hello and welcome back to the Nowhere Office and our third series of the podcast which looks at how the post-pandemic world of work is working out, specifically knowledge work and what used to be called office work. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. And I'm Stefan Stern. In this first programme, the first in our brand new series, we go stateside to New York and we take a look at the big picture from the world's biggest economy. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Moneypenny, who we've had the pleasure of working with in Series 2. Moneypenny are the leading call and live chat experts. Their highly personalised service began in the UK and has over 21,000 clients across both the UK and the US. Yes, and that was the impetus really, wasn't it, Julia, to take this first programme in the brand new series over to America with Money Penny. Now, I drew the short straw and stayed here, of course, in London, but I did get to chat to Nicholas Bloom, the eminent British professor based at Stanford University in California, who covers the waterfront of the working from home agenda, albeit by video call and not actually in California. Ah, yes, I had the luck to go back to one of my favourite cities where, together with Money Penny, we sat down with a really dynamic group of business leaders in real life in Manhattan, as well as individually in order to look candidly and closely at what this programme is devoted to, the view from the C-suite, i.e. the view from the top of organisations. So how is hybrid working out from the perspective of the corner office? What are the challenges and concerns and opportunities coming down the track? We're delighted to bring you an extended episode, as you'll hear. Each interviewee sheds a lot of light on what is happening in different sectors and industries. So here's just a taster of what's coming up. Certainly every location has gone through the pandemic in a different way, whether it's whether people went through lockdowns, whether it's people went through differences of when they returned to offices. But I think, and sometimes it is generational, but there are also so many nuances which come down to the nature of the job that you do and what your purpose is. And that's the most important thing, is to really understand the culture, what you're trying to achieve, what's important to you as an individual, but really how do we ensure that we make a success of our products and we put out on the streets every day Day, either the digital streets or the real streets, um, the, physical, the products that our readers and audience are looking for to do the best job that we can, because that will ensure that, again, we can continue to support our staff. We know that 44% of our population has caregiving duties, and that really adds to the complexity of even if you want a hybrid model, you're managing two schedules. And the data from the survey you know, told us that while hybrid is great for many people, it also can cause a bit of stress in terms of how they handle if they're uh, told what days they have to go in versus having the choice of what days to go in. As the barriers between work and life come down and the interplay between them is more, it is making us rethink what work means to us and the value it brings to our lives. And that is fundamentally what COVID has shifted is because as we shift that thinking, we shift about where we want to perform that. And so that's allowing us this great opportunity to say, yes, why was I in person? With Why did I need to be in person for this? Was this meaningful? Am I having a more collaborative conversation because I'm in person? Or could I achieve this in other ways that allow me to get those benefits of communicating with clarity, you know, having impact, driving results? If I ever thought we would be answering calls, actually sat in our own homes, answering calls for a big law firm, for example, and that they would trust us to do that, 
that relationship has to be really, really key, doesn't it, between the client and us as a provider. But also as a leader, I need to show a huge amount of trust in my people too. They are at home, they are or they're in the office. Actually, we've got to be so much more flexible than we ever were. We have proved to our people that we can work in a very, very different way during a pandemic than we ever worked before. Personally, it's this time for me to take a step back and think, how as leaders do we want our businesses to work? What kind of people do we need to be able to attract? And how can we marry up what our people need and what our business needs from an efficiency, productivity and recruitment and staff engagement perspective? That is just some of the insights from the C-suite coming up. You heard there, firstly, Anushka Healy, Head of Strategy at News Corp, publishers of The Times, Wall Street Journal, followed by Patty Clark, Global Chief Talent Officer of Havas Media, then Jeremy Sirota of Music Network Merlin, and finally, Joanna Swash, Global CEO of Moneypenny and a member of the Forbes Business Council. And indeed, the Prime Minister's UK Business Council. But first, we open with Nick Bloom, without doubt the man with the most data on the whole work-from-home revolution. He talked to Stefan and a little bit to me, from the University of Stanford, where he is William Eberly Professor in Economics. Some of our listeners, of course, will know your name already from the, the World Management Survey, much cited and discussed over many years that you and colleagues have developed. But, but really, I suppose your current focus is overwhelmingly on the impact of COVID and then how that's affecting working patterns, work organisation, with those big questions about productivity and the rest of it. Uh, can you give me a, a sort of headline spring 2022 about what you think's happening in this uh, sure. shifting story yeah so i mean one bottom line is work from home is clearly here to stay so it's gone from roughly five percent of working days in america uk to roughly going to be 25 percent post-pandemic where's that come from it's come from about half of people in you know northern europe north america can't work from home at all so think of you know Retail workers, McDonald's, frontline you know, manufacturing services. The other half of us can, and typically we're going to do something like three, two or two, three hybrid. So a very standard plan is like what Apple has announced. You come into the office Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, work from home Wednesday, Friday. So that's like 2022. If I was to, you know, forecast out 2032, maybe looking 10 years out. I mean, I think in the long run, this thing is only going to build because it's clear that technology is changing to increasingly improve work from home. So, you know, in the short run, Zoom is getting better, internet speeds are improving, cloud is improving, but longer run, there's a whole bunch of stuff like virtual reality, holograms, AI that's going to make life a lot better. And and what does this make you feel about the world of management? That is obviously something you've, as I alluded to, studied and understood for a long time. New New skills required, a new settlement in terms of you know, the engagement and, and satisfaction of workers, the commitment of workers. What, what thoughts are bubbling up in your head on that? The main story I hear, and actually it goes all the way back to, you know, this goes back for over a decade, is that when you have remote work, you want to be much more focused on managing outputs than inputs. So just to be clear, there's two ways to managing what goes on in an office. You can do outputs. You can say, you know, Stefan, I want to make sure I evaluate you based on what you produce, you write, you sell, you know, your documents, your advertising, whatever you're producing, I can have a 360 review 
you know, assess you, do it very thoroughly, and that's what your promotion and pay is based on. That's great. That's what we've always called good management. There's an alternative, which is kind of old-fashioned input management, which is mm. what I'm going to do is I'm going to stroll around the office, peer over your shoulder, try and surprise you, check you at your desk, typing away furiously. That's called input management. It's not really <laughs> ideal, but, you know, it kind of works in person. The problem is, of course, when you go remote, input management totally collapses. So I think for remote work, you really want to have output management. And it's not just for firms, it's for employees. So one of the things that's come out over the last year or so is for remote work is a big benefit. The first benefit is obviously saving on commute for employees. But the second is flexibility. So a lot of employees say, you know, if I'm output managed, I don't need to work all the hours in the days I'm at home. In fact, we see it in some studies, they work maybe one to two hours less on those days, make up for it on other days. They use the home days to say, go to the dentist, pick their kids up from school, go play around the golf, go shopping, whatever they want to do, safe in the knowledge that they're assessed on performance and therefore they, you know, they flex their work around their lives. So I think being well-managed, honestly, and setting up good performance reviews, 360 reviews, good data collection is pretty critical now. So that shift, Nick, around outputs, it's also affecting, if you like, the ancillary functions that have made office life and working life work with presenteeism, isn't it? It's the receptionists, it's the security guards, it's that whole infrastructure and expectation that office life is there like a sentry at at guard where it's not needed. Talk about what that Talk about that change. What's happening on that front? The support services of offices. Yes, I think there's a short and long run here. So in the short run, what's amazing is most firms are not really changing footprint office support. I mean, this short and I'm meaning 2022, 2023, early part, maybe mid part. So we've been surveying thousands of companies in the UK and US and saying, what's your plan for office space? And you might think, Given we just discussed that typical office workers are only going to come in late, say, three days a week, you could dramatically cut space. Turns out they're not. The average numbers we're getting is minus one, two percent. And the short run reason for that is scheduling. So, you know, the, the setup is, you know, when you teach at university or given lecture halls or classrooms and you're told, you know, Nick, you're going to teach Monday, Wednesday, nine to ten fifty. But for employees, you can't really schedule them like that. You can't say, you know. Julius Stefan, I want you guys in on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Nick, you're in Wednesday, Friday. It's very hard to do that. In fact, firms really want employees in on the same days. We see in the data the big reason to come to work is to see your colleagues. And if folks are coming in on the same day, like the Apple plan, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, you're in the office, you can't really reduce office space and support services that much. But I think the long run is going to be pretty radical. So, Julia, if we look probably three, certainly to five years out, then there's a lot of technology that's going to help that scheduling. There's a lot more flexibility. So I think if you're looking five to 10 years out, we're going to see, you know, 2019 has really bloated. These huge offices and city centers, a bunch of them are going to slim down. That's not happening now because no one wants to do risky major reorganizations in the middle of the tail end of a pandemic. But yeah, in the medium term, that's definitely going to happen. I mean, I have to say the big flashpoint right now in hybrid work from home is the, cho- is the difference between coordination versus choice. To explain, there's two modes. One is the choice mode. So I say to the entire office, you guys, I want you in, let's say, three days a week, but you choose which days. And in fact, you can even choose that, you know, you can come in for two weeks in a row and then take two weeks off kind of thing. 
The other extreme is I'm going to coordinate. I'm going to do Apple, say, or do it team by team, have you all come in Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Choice initially sounds really appealing because people like to choose. And in fact, during the pandemic, you wanted them to choose because you wanted them to come in on different days. Post-pandemic, the only, you know, the big reason that folks are going to come to the office is to see their colleagues. When you survey people, you ask them, why do you want to come to the office? It's not the free bagel or the ping pong table. It's basically to see my colleagues. And that means you have to coordinate. So when I talk to firms, the thing that they're really struggling with now is employees saying, I want to choose my days, but also saying, when I come in, I want to see everyone else and I want some coordination. And so that is honestly the hardest management challenge or one of the big ones. I've been working on this for almost 20 years. (laughs) But, you know, at that point, everything you've been working on becomes completely outdated because the pandemic changed everything. And so with two colleagues, Jose Barrera and Steve Davis, we set up an online survey of 5,000 people a month. And we've been asking people month over month, how much have you worked from home? What has your employer told you? What do you want to do? And you see what you see is a gradual evolution. Since the beginning, employees, all of us, basically really wanted to work from home on average two to three days a week. There's a big spread. So some people love it, some hate it, but the average is pretty flat at about two and a half days a week. Employers initially were very reticent. So you ask people, what has your employer told you is going to happen post-pandemic? And early on, it was like one day. Most employers are saying, no, you're going back to the office. You know, this is May 2020. They're saying, once this thing is over, we're back to the old ways. By May 21, and certainly by you know, May 2022, you know, we're not quite there yet, but the numbers we see now are employers are saying 2.2, 2.3, so a massive increase. So what we see over the last two years is, you know, the, the, the US, UK have grabbed this thing fully and said, fine, post-pandemic world is hybrid, We like this. We're going to go with it. We don't want fully remote mostly, but we do want two days a week and we're going to run with this and make it work. He's the rock god of all of this, isn't he, Stefan? Not least because he's been watching the trends and has been surprised by them. The opposite of confirmation bias. Exactly. He's the real deal academically and sets the scene, I think, very well, Julia, for your New York roundtable with real life executives living real life with what Nick was talking about. Let's cut to that room in downtown Manhattan. I know you had great coffee and bagels when you sat down with two of the people we've heard a snippet from already. There's Joanna Swash, Group Chief Executive of Moneypenny, and Patty Clark, Chief Global Talent Officer at Havas Media. But also with you were Rob Berger, Executive Director Stern, Kessler, Goldstein and Fox, Candice Carroll, Chief Financial Officer, Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. So what's it like from the C-suite, the C-suite being anyone with a C in their name, chief talent officer, chief executive officer, chief financial officer, chief operating officer, and you all fit that bill. Joanna, we're recording this in New York. Moneypenny began as a UK business. You're now a global business with a large American footprint, as they say. Is America and the UK united in the way it's grappling with these issues, or are there differences? I think the difference is for us, you know, at the end of the day, we are answering telephone calls for lots of different businesses, whether it's in the UK, whether it's in the US. The way traditionally that we've done that is actually very different. From an office-based business, 100% office-based business, we acquired um, Voice Nation back in 2020, and they already had a very successful remote and hybrid working model. So we have been able to copy that to a degree and bring that over into our UK model. 
I think what people's expectations are are very different in terms of engagement, culture, training. So as a group, not only have we got to think what kind of people have we got, but we have to have different approaches to our different markets too. There are always winners and losers, aren't there, with disruption? And I think it's fair to say that Money Penner is a winner in that lots and lots of people are outsourcing and therefore lots and lots of people need remote outsourced telephone answering and live chat is that right are you you're booming we are booming but for us any period of time that means business leaders step back and say blank sheet of paper what do I want my business to look like how is it going to work better for me that's a good period of time for anybody in outsourcing and anybody delivering a different way of working and Rob you're a client of Moneypenny and you've I think halved your office space but you've not halved the number of people that you're hiring. Tell us a little bit about your industry, the legal industry. We're in the process of it. We haven't officially done it. We're actually building out our space right now. And we signed a lease. It was a, a lot of chutzpah to sign a lease in the middle of the pandemic, actually at the lower sort of point. But we viewed a lot of opportunity in the market to sort of get out in front and reinvent ourselves. And so we were Money Penny's first client in the United States, actually. We encourage them to sort of come here because they're really good at what they do. And I think part of the opportunity is to have the right people doing the right things and the right skill level. But not necessarily in a fixed place because you no longer then have receptionists or as many receptionists or people picking up the telephone visibly within reach of somebody's office. That's the switch, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so when you walk in our space you're greeted by a concierge that's not answering the phones that gives you a hundred percent of the attention they need when they're there and so it's a much higher level experience it's not a you know a lot of people think outsourcing is a money play that's not how we were thinking of it we were thinking of having the best so if you call up money penny should know call rob berger well first try my cell phone first they have a very sophisticated computer network they know how to sort of deal and route calls and do it in a much more sophisticated way and guess what we move from nine to five to 24 hours a day where we have our phones being answered and now it's freed up resources to greet people in a much higher level in a much more sophisticated way that's fascinating and candice you're a cfo a chief financial officer of a business that's also around engineering and space and property. So you tell us about the shifts you're observing. Well, at SOM, we're a global um, design firm, and we are about placemaking. I think um, what you said just resonated with me in the sense that CFO right now means thinking about change. C is for change. And the change is around how we spend our money, how we invest, and how we drive value for our clients, it totally changes the landscape of our value proposition. Uh, We have invested heavily in agility tools such as cloud and home spaces for our employees that make people more productive. And so um, that has changed our spending landscape. We're also investing in training in a very defined way because there's less organic training, less, less things are happening organically. So when I was researching the book, I tried to look up how much the market for office chairs is compared to VR headsets. And guess which is larger and growing. I mean, you're spending less on 
office chairs and swanky desks, I presume. And our clients are wanting us to be more thoughtful about how they spend their money for their spaces, and we're helping them reimagine that. Patty, you have a global role, and you've had to create some global standards across a very large and distributed network. You, I understand, have found the lives of your employees and subcontractors are changing and you're getting different information about them, aren't you? Sure. So I'm the global chief talent officer for the Havas Group, and I work across all three of our networks, media, creative, and health, globally in 100 countries, 20,000 plus employees. I think culturally, you've seen a lot of differences in terms of how it's impacted people. But in general, I would say first people went through a great learning curve where literally overnight they went from being in their offices to working from home. Uh, We tried very much to help support people with that. And I think over time, what happened was kind of the benefits of people getting time back in their lives. I think particularly in places where people had long commutes. And it kind of really created an environment where people were starting to get a lot of pluses out of the fact that they had time for family, time for other things. I do think over time, the work has crept back into some of that. And we do see that people need help cutting off the workday if they're fully remote um, or even in the hybrid model. We just completed our engagement survey and we had uh, 82% participation. So 16,000 plus employees took the survey and we added a lot of questions around work life and well-being as well as their caregiving status and that gave us a tremendous amount of insight Um, we know that 44 percent of our population has caregiving duties and that really adds to the complexity of even if you want a hybrid model you're managing two schedules and the data from the survey you know told us that while hybrid is great for many people it also can cause a bit of stress in terms of how they handle if they're uh, told what days they have to go in versus having the choice of what days to go in. Candice and Rob, I'm interested that what seems to be happening is that these slightly atomized grand roles, chief operating officer, chief financial officer before the pandemic, have now become roles in which you've got to be across everything. Is that right? Would you say your roles have deepened or broadened as a result? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm being asked to bring in outside guidance and, and thoughts on a variety of topics to get the wheels turning, to get people embracing this moment of change. And in our profession, I think the architects, the designers feel quite committed to leading the world to new placemaking. And that requires a lot of creativity. How about you, Rob? Are you the chief creative officer, really? You know, in In these transition times, leadership matters, right? And I've been told that some of our communications are like the fireside chats during World War II, where you're talking about what's going on and you're giving information to people on a real-time basis, and it's really, really critical. And so the roles of being a leader, you know, throughout this change period, there's a lot of opportunity, but it's very scary for people. And Joanna, in some ways, I get the feeling that people confide in you, that Moneypenny is a role which is so intimate and personal that the calls to senior leaders, to anyone Mm -hmm. front-facing in an organisation, are being trusted to you and your team. Presumably the leaders who hire you are telling you more. Yes, yes, they undoubtedly are. So 
And also, think about the trust. We're talking about the way that we're working has changed completely. If I ever thought we would be answering calls, actually sat in our own homes, answering calls for a big law firm, for example, and that they would trust us to do that, that relationship has to be really, really key, doesn't it, between the client and us as a provider. But also, as a leader, I need to show a huge amount of trust in my people too. They are at home, they are, or they're in the office, and I need to be able to connect with them, like Rob says, in a very real-time basis and have that relationship and connect with lots of different people who, them very, who themselves are in very, very different circumstances. So I think that whole C-suite leadership role has changed immensely over the past couple of years, and the skill sets that we need as leaders have really, really moved on. Well, I think based on the expertise around this particular podcast table, all your organisations are in very good hands and your clients too. I'd really like to thank Patty Clark, Candice Carroll, Rob Berger and of course Joanna Swash for joining us here in New York on the Nowhere Office. Well, bravo, what a conversation. That discussion was recorded after a salon breakfast you hosted with Editorial Intelligence in person with a a wider group of C-suite players, I think, Julia, because you sat down immediately afterwards with one of the biggest names in global corporate strategy, that's Anushka Healy of the News Corporation. Anushka, you're responsible for strategy across how many... How many geographies, how many people? We have approximately 22,000 people around the world, primarily uh, London, Sydney, New York, but again, represented in many cities uh, in other countries. Um, So a very, very uh, widespread workforce. And every single one of them has a different perspective, really, don't they now, on where they work and when they work? Exactly. So for a long time as a global company, we've been used to meetings that operate at all times of day and night with the various time zones. but everyone absolutely has had their own individual experience of what the last two years has been about uh, and it's been exceptionally important that as a leadership team we listen to those experiences uh, what people um, are hoping for uh, as they return to the office um, and how they feel they can be the best version of themselves and do the best job that they want to do for us. In some senses I would imagine that your business has been quite adaptable and resilient because you're in a news business which has faced disruption for the last 30 years anyway so you're no stranger to the idea of stopping one thing on a Monday and starting a new thing on a Friday. That's definitely right we, we, we do like to uh, we do like to take on challenges we like to see change in the world we're very comfortable with um, uh, with that very comfortable with ambiguity and that's what we're at, uh, at the stage that we're in at the moment I think what we you know we've had foreign reporters operating remotely from their offices for many years you know you have overseas correspondence so there is an, an inbuilt understanding of the flexibility uh, that you need to have within an organization when you have a remote workforce but as a cultural as a culture and as a creative organization we also recognize uh, the uh, importance in finding the right ways to bring people together and to have the right experience in the office to do their best work. I understand that you're giving your managers quite a lot of autonomy to set the working patterns geography by geography and team by team. Yeah, I think we recognise that everyone performs a different function, everyone is in a different uh, location, everyone has a different experience of what it means to do their job, um, what is required. 
and we really do empower our leadership teams to take those decisions that are right for their talent. We want them to be able to recognize what people need in their lives, to be able to do their job efficiently. We know that they understand what the business needs to be able to um, succeed and the business succeeding means that our staff succeed and that we can hire more journalists, um, do incredible work. So we look for that balance and that balance really is a balance of um, what's right for the individual but also what's right for the company um, and how we can be a strong company and culture to ensure that we can support our staff. And certainly every location has gone through the pandemic in a different way, whether it's whether people went through lockdowns, whether it's people went through uh, differences of when they returned to offices. But I think, and sometimes it is generational, but there are also so many nuances which come down to the nature of the job that you do um, and what your purpose is. And that's the most important thing, is to really understand the culture, what you're trying to achieve, um, what's important to you as an individual, but really how do we ensure that we make a success of our products and we put out on the streets every day, either the digital streets or the real streets, um, the, the products that our readers and audience are looking for to do the best job that we can, because that will ensure that, again, we can continue to support our staff. That's fascinating. So really, you're not wedded to any of the old fixed models. You go where your people need you to go as well as of course where your customers and your readers and your viewers need to go. Again, as a global company, we're certainly used to operating, uh, say, in different time zones in different places. We definitely do have a strong belief in the, the, the importance of convening, the cultural moments that can happen when you get people together. In some cases, there will be days that can be done remotely and that will be of benefit. But in other cases, there will be the importance really of bringing people together. And sometimes you just don't, you don't ever quite know what you're going to get out of seeing someone in person. And we all know those moments where we step away from a meeting and you know that that can have happened via a screen or over an email. And that special source from bringing people together is why I'm exceptionally optimistic for creative moments that will come through fully understanding how people like to come together and just making that a great experience and that's a real responsibility that every executive team member has to find those moments and bring people together for that special something. Thank you so much Anushka Healy. Well that was as we say in media land a good get Julia. Yes I was really lucky to have Anushka's perspective We've known each other for a very long time from London, actually, so it felt a good fit now she's based in the US. And then you bagged one more C-suiter, and I say I like the switch from high-flying, large-scale corporates to the innovative startup CEO we end with, that's Jeremy Sirota, and he had a 20-year career with Warner Music and Facebook in the big business world before becoming head of the independent music network Merlin. And Julia went to see him in New York to find out what leadership in the NOAA office means to him and his people. So, Jeremy, tell me about Merlin and tell me about what it's making of this moment in the world of business. Great, great big question to start with. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Merlin, uh, the best way to describe it for your audience is Merlin is like a major for independence. So if you're an independent label, you're an independent distributor, and you want to get access to premium deals with companies like Spotify and TikTok and YouTube, you come to Merlin. You get treated the same way as if you were going through Universal or Warner or Sony. And Merlin provides that same level, that best-in-class deal for our members so that they can own their independence. 
And we, we've been around for almost 15 years now. And I believe Merlin has played a key role in helping to ensure that independents and their artists can better succeed in the digital marketplace. And how many employees do you have and where do they work from? We are, we are about 40 employees now, which is about double what we were when I started as CEO about two years ago. And they are in London. We have about 25 in London. Uh, we have one in North London, one in Brighton, uh, one in the Netherlands, two in Tokyo, seven in New York, and one in North Carolina, uh, which is my way of saying for a small company, we're very dispersed. So really, you are technically the embodiment of what we call, I call the nowhere office. It was not how we started in January 2020 when I came on board as CEO. When I arrived, we were very much a office culture, especially in, in London, where the primary workforce was. It was always in uh, the office, uh, this sort of uh, classic nine to five or nine to six. And uh, in New York, there were only two employees. I was only the third employee. And they were working out of a WeWork. Where I came from, if we just rewind history for a moment, I came from, you know, I started my professional career as a technology lawyer at a big law firm. That was very much the classic 9 to 9, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., showing up, you know, FaceTime across the office with partners. And that was the origins of my career. I went, then went to a, a large music company. I was at Warner Music. And then, and then Facebook. So and then Facebook. all of them with enormous sort of muscular buildings, symbols of fabulousness in the bricks and the mortar. Yes. So you've had a total change of perspective. What do you think now? Do you have to be mm-hmm. working? Well, you obviously don't have to be working nine to nine or nine to six from a fixed place. There must have been some pretty hairy moments. Well, the first rule, and, and by the way, right now for Merlin, we are still primarily working from home with a voluntary return to office at this phase. Because interestingly, I'm interviewing you in your home. Yes. Which is not a million miles away from your office. We're, they're both are in downtown Manhattan. I won't be more specific than that. Yes, that, that's right. So uh, what's that about? Well, why wasn't I interviewing you at your office? It's a good question. The, the reason why is we currently have a no visitors policy for the office. And that's partly because of the phase we're in with respect to COVID, about ensuring that we're being thoughtful about society and our teams. So that brings me on to a, almost a side issue, which is currently central, which is the whole safety thing. Mm-hmm. I have been extremely struck being in New York. I've had meetings at Google. I've had meetings at Bloomberg. I've had meetings in smaller operations. The bigger the operation, the more risk-averse they are, mm-hmm. the more form-filling, the more rules they've been. So... COVID's spread and containment remains very much part of the story, doesn't it, about how and when people are going to get back to offices at all? And it, it should be. I mean, if we, if we rewind 20 years at the beginning of my career, not only was it you're always in, you're in even if you're sick. There was not, and maybe that was part of the culture of working in a large law firm. There was definitely high expectations from uh, junior associates. But this idea of now going into an office, if you're feeling unwell, that's just evaporated. I mean, one of our first policies we have about returning to the office is, regardless of COVID, if you feel unwell, don't come in. Not only does no one want to get COVID, no one wants to get a cold either or get the flu or get some other illness. When we hire, when we empower, 
when we give people responsibilities or we allow them to articulate what they want to do, we are putting trust in them, but they're putting trust in us that we value them. We value them not just as an employee, but as a human, and that we're invested in their development, their growth, and that we will bring them as far as they want to go. So this is my final question for you. We're hearing a lot from property developers and those involved in the bricks and mortar side of offices Mm -hmm. that the only way is up, that you have to make them more glamorous, more persuasive for presenteeism. But I'm also hearing from those in charge of the people side that they want to go deeper and into better, long-lasting relationships with their employees because they know that that will bring the cost of attracting and training and losing and churning employees in a tight market. Do you think this is making you appreciate people who work for you more? I'm sure you were incredibly enlightened beforehand. (laughs) But these new values where the employee or the contractor or the freelancer is the make or break for your industry, do you think there's a new awareness of that post-pandemic? I have that awareness, absolutely. You don't mind admitting that? No, no, it's absolutely true in the sense that I'm a first-time CEO uh, and I had a lot of support around me and I had a lot of people throughout my career that helped me prepare for it, but no one can ever truly prepare for what it means to run a company. And what COVID afforded me was the opportunity to be entirely, almost inwardly looking at the company, at the people. And allowed us over the last two years, and this is, by the way, we don't have an HR lead yet. It's one, of the, it's one of the key things I'm hiring for as a people and cultural manager, but we focus on mentorships. We've established a rotational employee program that allows everyone to participate on other departments' meetings. We've developed better communication methods. Uh, we've created more transparency and access. We've just rolled out a six-month learning and development program with a really sophisticated company that's teaching us situational leadership and how to frame what you're doing to the other side, how to have more open conversations. So what COVID has given to me is just a deeper appreciation for how much more investment you can do into people. And that when you do that, ultimately, our organization is about our members. We are a member-led organization. But nothing works, nothing happens unless the people at Merlin believe in it, believe in the impact they have, believe that the company's invested in them and see the impact that they're having on our members and the music ecosystem. And that's what COVID has given me, which is a silver lining for obviously a very devastating virus. But for the people who work at Merlin, it's been really impactful at that level for me personally and professionally. That's fascinating. Thank you so much, Jeremy Sorota of Merlin. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, there we have it. And that was a great perspective to close on because it brings us back to the, the elephant in the room, the factor which propelled the Nowhere office into being, COVID, which is still casting its shadow, really, isn't it? Yep, you might call it the long tail. We could, of course, have gone on for much longer in this episode. And in fact, in a short while, we will return to the US with Moneypenny in another episode to bring you the voice from a different key US city, Atlanta. Tech Hub, home of Moneypenny US and our broadcast partner for America, 
Business Radio X and incidentally, home of the Atlanta uprising of Apple workers unionising because they don't want to go back to the office, Stefan. <laughs> That's right. So in the next episode, we join forces with Microsoft to bring you a deep dive into the world of how we use technology now and specifically in relation to our great expectations of hybrid, the topic, in fact, of this year's uh, Microsoft Trends Survey. So we say goodbye by saying, welcome back. We've loved being with you again. You've been listening to The Nowhere Office with us. That's Julia Hobsbawm. And Stefan Stern. It's an editorial intelligence production. And this episode was brought to you in association with Moneypenny, with studio production from Business Radio X in Atlanta, music by Julian Brison, New York coordination from Richard Sturger, And you can find out more by going to editorialintelligence.com and downloading the show notes.